Yeah, I'm very grateful um, to the Oxford Centre for Neuroethics and particularly the Leverhulm Trust for bringing me out here and enabling me to give me, uh, these series of lectures. Three lectures uh, this year on the topic of self-control and two next year on implicit bias. Those are two um, rather disparate topics. There are some interesting connections between them or perhaps connections between the kinds of approaches I'll take to them. Uh, one obvious kind of connection between the uh, topic of self-control and the topic of implicit bias is that both involve, in some sense, agents acting against their own judgments. So implicit biases are these unconscious biases to a first approximation in any case that people uh, often don't know they have, which conflict with their explicit judgments about how they ought to act, and yet which um, affect their behaviour nevertheless. So in some sense that's agents acting against their own explicit judgments. Uh, and self-control, well self-control is of perennial philosophical interest due to its connection to one of the most ancient philosophical uh, problems, which is the problem that uh, the Greeks called the problem of akrasia, which is the problem of agents apparently intentionally and voluntarily acting against their own best judgments. I have a little bit to say about uh, akrasia or how about how about how my remarks connect up to that debate uh, as we go. Although, as you'll see, I'm not I'm approaching it in a way that's slightly off centre um, with regard to that debate. But there's another connection between implicit bias and self-control, or at least a connection in the way I want to approach them. And so I'll say a little bit about that as a kind of prefatory remark before I turn to um, the topic of self-control um, itself. So the, the commonality I want to emphasize here is for me these are both best understood as problems of belief management or self-management. And I mean the management here to be taken seriously. Um, and I also want you to hear, when I say management, I want you to hear those aspects of that word, or managerialism, which get people's uh, hackles up. I deliberately want those connotations to be in play. I'm claiming that um, exercising self-control is, in significant respects, a matter of taking a managerial approach to ourselves, an objectifying approach, a reifying approach. I'm using those words quite deliberately here. There's a lot of resistance to this kind of idea, and <clears throat> this resistance is well motivated. Um, Here's one way of getting at that resistance. So I've said that self-control is very importantly a problem of uh, managing our beliefs. Now our beliefs are partially and significantly, centrally, constitutive of who we are. Um, agents have deliberative standpoints. 
things strike us as reasons, things count as reasons for us in favour of acting or against acting in certain ways. And that's our deliberative standpoint, uh, which entails that things count as reasons for us. And our deliberative standpoint is very significantly constituted by our beliefs. It's because I have certain beliefs about what is good, about what's worthwhile, about what's conducive to my interests, instrumental and, and uh, final beliefs, that things count as reasons for me, at least in very important part. So managing one's beliefs is taking a managerial approach to oneself. Um, and people will rightly worry about that kind of, of approach. There's an influential school, uh, perhaps current in philosophy, which I'll call rationalists, which makes central the idea that we should not take uh, an objective approach to ourselves, or at very least, make central the claim that taking such an approach to ourselves is risky, something that one doesn't do uh, unless uh, it's really urgent that one does so, that, that the goods that thereby achieved can't be achieved in any other way. I have in mind, for example, people like Richard Moran in the self-knowledge debate. So Richard Moran says, when it comes to self-knowledge, here are two ways I can generate self-knowledge. I can take an objective approach to myself. Uh, for example, I could ask my therapist what I think. My therapist might be, you know, have good insight into what I think. Or I could put myself in an fMRI scanner and maybe, uh, maybe a neuroscientist would be able to tell me what I think. Uh, and that could be one way in which I could generate self-knowledge. Uh, another way to do it is to look to the world. So suppose I want to know what England's chances are in the current World Cup being played in Australia and New Zealand. I could uh, maybe look at my past diary jottings and try to generate from that as kind of third personal uh, uh, knowledge of what I think about England's chances. Or I could look at uh, England's form, I could look at their current results, I could look at the, uh, the um, lineup and the management, look at the fact that they've done very, very badly recently, and generate a belief that way. Our beliefs are transparent to the world. That's the essential nature of beliefs. They ought to be responsive to evidence. Moran says, taking a third personal approach to self-knowledge is to abdicate your responsibility as an agent. You're required, insofar as you're an agent, to form your beliefs by looking to the evidence. That's a, the kind of agents we are. And it's abdicating uh, your, your freedom as an agent. It's objectifying yourself. Um, it's denying that you are essentially an agent and that your beliefs are essentially responses uh, to evidence. I mean, you can see the same kind of current approach in a very different kind of way in the moral responsibility debates, where an influential current, which stems from uh, Peter Strawson, um, argues that holding people blameworthy is a way of respecting them. 
because it engages with them as free and responsible beings. Whereas uh, excusing them is to see them as forces of nature. You don't blame a tiger for, for attacking a person. You certainly don't blame a tornado for destroying a house. When you excuse a person, unless there really are egregious kinds of circumstances which make it appropriate to take what Strawson called the objective attitude to them, when you excuse them, you deny their freedom and you deny their agency. So the Strawsonians, I don't, I don't want to talk about Strawson because it's hard to interpret Strawson, but Strawsonians often say we're required to take the participant stance to wrongdoers. Again, the risks of objectifying are incredibly high. So seeing one's self as something to be managed, seeing one's beliefs, which are partially constitutive of the self, as something to be managed, is no small thing. And I think that, that I, I, I'm going to be arguing against this rationalist position, but we ought to recognize that there is some truth in this. Um, taking a purely objective stance to oneself, I think is unimaginable. Um, but there's a lot of truth in, in the claim that our being reasons responsive agents is central to what we value about ourselves. Uh, so we oughtn't to take the objective stance lightly. Still, I'm going to argue that we ought to take the objective stance to some degree and in some ways to ourselves in order to exercise self-control. And that self-control is not something that's optional for us insofar as we are rational agents who aim to pursue valuable goods, who are required by uh, con constitutive conditions of being a rational agent, we have to uh, take this objective stance to ourselves to some degree. All right, that's the framing. Now I'll turn to self-control itself. So this is obviously an important topic. You can think about the ways in which failures of self-control uh, contribute to increases in, uh, in morbidity and mortality through uh, excessive alcohol consumption, through uh, consumption of illegal drugs, through smoking, um, and through overeating. Um, Stunning fact, in 2011, for the first time, the number of obese people in the world exceeded the number of undernourished people. I think that's a stunning fact, although it's also partly good news. It's been partly driven by a decrease in uh, malnourishment, as well as an increase in obesity. Now, all of those things are partially, only partially, but partially explained by failures of self-control. Not every smoker uh, wants to give up, not every person who drinks too much wants to drink less, and so forth, but some of them do. Um, and to that extent, these problems are driven by failures of self-control. But there's another value in self-control that I want to bring out, and it's this. Self-control is necessary in a, in a much more banal way, in a way. And that is, it's necessary for the pursuit of valuable goods. 
it's necessary for the pursuit of what Rawls called a conception of the good, an overarching idea of what makes life worth living, which implicitly, it's, it's plausible to think, we each have. So if you think about the life of a scholar um, or an academic, which isn't the same thing, um, <laughs> that involves continually exercising self-control. You know, I will work on this paper uh, for a reward that's delayed in time and that requires me foregoing more immediate pleasures. That's an exercise of self-control. Paradigmatically, as in cases like this, I'm going to talk about paradigmatically and typically because I'm not going to give you necessary insufficient conditions. I'm not sure there are any to be had. Um, paradigmatically, and this illustrates it, um, self-control involves foregoing smaller, sooner rewards in favour of larger, later rewards. So my working on this paper uh, I, is something I pursue in order that I get it published down the track. It's a larger, later reward. I value it more than what I could be doing instead. What might I be doing instead? I don't know. Uh, playing Tetris or um, staring out the window or, or going from link to link on the internet or whatever it might be. All of those things are things that are more tempting in the short term, but I value them much less. They're smaller, sooner rewards. The getting published is not only a larger reward that's later, it's also much more uncertain because, of course, the chances that it gets accepted are very far from um, 100%. So self-control conflicts arise when re rewards conflict, smaller sooner and larger later rewards. The conflict can be uh, stronger or weaker. So this is an example of a weaker conflict. Um, it's a weaker conflict because there's no, not merely there's no logical incompatibility, but in fact, sometimes I do get into temptation and I still get the paper done. It's, uh, so it's a weak conflict. It just makes it harder for me to get the paper done. If I spend my time um, uh, chasing links across the internet today, then I'm going to have to work harder tomorrow. So it's a weaker conflict. A strong conflict, um, again, doesn't logically preclude my uh, achieving a later, larger reward, but it makes it much more difficult and it may, for all practical purposes, preclude my um, achieving a larger, later reward. Suppose my goal is to save for retirement and the temptation is to buy a Ferrari. Um, for all practical purposes, these may be uh, goods that exclude one another. I don't know what the resale value of a second-hand Ferrari is, but probably not particularly good. And probably if I buy that Ferrari, I don't have enough money for a time. In any case, it's easy to cook up cases like that. So, self-control involves uh, trading off or overcoming the temptation to pursue a smaller, sooner reward in order to pursue a larger, later reward. <coughs> I don't know if there are paradoxical cases of self-control as like, there are paradoxical cases of acrasia. Paradoxical case of acrasia is a case when somebody uses um, 
the, the mechanisms of self-control in order to do something they judge that they, that they shouldn't do. So for example, suppose I give in to peer pressure and uh, uh, decide to vandalize a house, even though I judge I oughtn't to do that, and I somehow exert self-control to bring it about that I vandalize the house. That would be a paradoxical case of, of, um, of acrasia, or um, of avoiding acrasia. I don't know if there are paradoxical cases like that uh, in the offing. In any case, this is a naturalistic approach to self-control. My suggestion is that self-control utilizes mechanisms which evolved for the purposes of negotiating the smaller, sooner, larger, later uh, conflict in order to pursue a larger, later reward. I'm supposing some kind of picture like this. Our very distant ancestors were relatively stimulus-bound. They pursued larger, later rewards only when they had uh, scripts for doing so, like the, the, ca the caching scripts of a squirrel um, who doesn't you know, explicitly intend, I assume, to uh, cache nuts for, for the winter, but has, um, but has certain instinctual behaviours which drive the, the caching. And you can show that by showing they can be fired by uh, particular cues, even when it's inappropriate that they be fired. Uh, at some point in evolution, as we developed um, more complex uh, brains, uh, we developed what psychologists call the capacity for mental time travel, which is the capacity to simulate rewards in the future, to imagine yourself having that paper accepted, imagine yourself lifting that World Cup, um, or imagine yourself not... Um, starving in your retirement and at that point it became adaptive to free yourself from uh, being stimulus bound but the the mechanisms uh, which for good adaptive reasons are highly sensitive to cues of immediate reward remain in place so we're still highly sensitive to cues of um, food availability for example uh, even though in our current environment um, it's not particularly adaptive. So, as a result, we have these conflicts between this effort for what psychologists often call System 2 mechanism and these System 1 mechanisms, where the System 2 mechanisms need to override these powerful System 1 mechanisms in order to achieve um, larger, uh, later rewards. Again, I want to emphasize that this is central to the achievement of any plausible conception of the good. So even, I think, a hedonistic conception of the good is going to involve the smaller, sooner, larger, later trade-off. Because a hedonist will want to not only uh, get pleasure now, but ensure that they get pleasure in the future. And to do that, they're going to have to um, husband their resources, not spend all their money right now, um, ensure that they're healthy enough to enjoy pleasure in the future. If you know, if I think I'm going to uh, pursue pleasure, the best way to do that is just go out and buy as much heroin as possible right now, that doesn't maximize pleasure across my lifespan. So a rational hedonist 
probably needs to negotiate the smaller, sooner, uh, larger, later conflict too. Even in an environment of genuine abundance, the conflict arises. So George Ainsley has talked about this. Um, for somebody who lives in an environment of abundance, you have the problem of satiation. Here's a toy example. If you want to enjoy dinner tonight, uh, you need to be hungry. And to do that, you need to forego the, the temptation of eating during the day. So if you want, to, uh, you want to get pleasure in an environment of abundance, you still are in the business of resisting temptation. But we know it's very difficult to avoid this capture by the immediate. Um, we are temporal discounters. Uh, it's rational to be a temporal discounter. If you offer me £10 in six months time or £9.95 now, it might be rational for me to choose £9.95 now. Um, actually, I might not like the small change. Maybe it should be ten pounds now and ten pounds and five p in six months' time. Um, that's rational for a variety of reasons. It might be rational for a variety of reasons. Um, I might not be able to enforce the contract in six months' time, whereas I can be sure of getting it now. Um, inflation eats into it to some extent. Um, I might die in the interim. For a number of reasons, discounting is rational. But our actual discount functions, if you, um, if you uh, graph them in the lab, are hyperbolic, which is to say they are bowed. The discount function is itself, the function itself, is sensitive to the time at which rewards are delivered. As a result, as rewards get closer in time, we, uh, we decrease the discounts. We don't just value them less, we do, uh, value them more. We do that, but we also decrease the discount function so that the, the, um, they get an extra boost for being in temporal proximity. What that brings about is the possibility of our discount functions crossing, which exponential discount function, which are nearly lines, can never cross. And that sets us up for cycles of what I call resolution, reconsideration, regret, the three R's. So, say at 9am this morning, I might think a healthy body max index is something I value more. And I value that more than having chocolate cake for dessert tonight. But because my discount function is hyperbolic, um, both, the, both rewards may uh, move closer in time uh, at the same rate, but the, because the chocolate cake is immediately available at 8pm tonight, I now value it much more than I should relative to the BMI. Um, so I now reconsider my resolution. And at some time, maybe it's 8.30 p.m., maybe it's 9 p.m., maybe it's only 9 a.m. the next morning, I regret what I've done. <laughs> Hyperbolic discounters are set up for these cycles of resolution, reconsideration, regret. Now that's familiar enough. Um, that's a change of mind. 
And I've argued elsewhere that the mechanism is driven by judgment shift. Uh, I've argued, I've provided neural evidence uh, that, the, that the, the judgment is driven by, um, by the, the change of, of mind is, is just that, a judgment shift. But I won't refer to that, um, the neural evidence today. Just staying at the psychological level, there's lots of reasons to think that this is best understood as judgment shift. Um, but it's not judgment shift that's regarded as a change, a mere change of mind. Here's why. It's not a change of mind in response to evidence that wasn't available to me when I made the, re the resolution at, in the first place. I knew everything there was to know about chocolate cake and what makes it attractive for me. <coughs> I'm here, if, um, I'm just following Richard Holton for those who, who uh, might be recognizing it. For that reason, I think it's well regarded as a, um, a um, loss of, of control over judgments rather than a mere change of mind. It's not as though somebody's given me an extra reason I hadn't taken into account for um, eating chocolate cake, although I may take my, myself to be presented with an extra reason. I'll um, talk about that in a minute. Um, one reason to think that this is judgment shift is this looks like controlled behavior, what psychologists call the controlled behavior. It looks like, to use the philosophical jargon, it looks like you know, a behavior controlled by belief-desire pairs. You can't look at failures of self-control of the kinds I have in mind. As opposed to coughing fits, you can't look at them and say, that person's lost control. It doesn't show up behaviorally. And there's also evidence from the psychological literature um, for this, from the ego depletion um, literature, which I'll be talking about um, uh, at great length next time. The ego depletion literature shows that people, um, not only uh, when they are induced to lose control, not only do they give in to temptation more, but they also make judgments about future occasions, which um, indicate that there's been something of a judgment shift. So for example, they not only eat more pizza right now, but they say, uh, when I come back, maybe there should be more pizza on the menu too next week. Um, and also they, there's direct evidence they're more easily persuadable when they've been induced to uh, um, uh, to, to lose control, which again is indirect evidence that, uh, if you like, they may have been persuaded by the proto-temptation that the, um, uh, sorry, the proto-argument that the temptation represents. But um, uh, for an instance of how self-controlled behavior looks like controlled behavior, or put it paradoxically, when people lose self-control, they don't lose self-control. So it's a nice illustration from Austin. Um, so I thought I'm quite an, an Oxford philosopher from the, the, the high days of Oxford philosophy in this context. Uh, Austin has this little example where he's at high table and uh, an ice cream cake cut into segments is served. 
and the cake is cut so that uh, one segment corresponds to each person at high table, such that there's, uh, if anyone cheats and takes more than one, someone's going to miss out. So Austin imagines himself uh, tempted to help myself to two segments and do so, thus succumbing to temptation. But do I lose control of myself? Do I raven? Do I snatch the morsels from the dish and wolf them down, impervious to the consternation of my colleagues? Not a bit of it. We often succumb to temptation with calm and even with finesse. Um, we now have before us enough material to begin to glimpse the dangers that rationalism poses. So we are hyperbolic discounters. Our discount curves cross. More particularly, they cross when a temptation is imminently available. Now, resolutions come hemmed in with implicit escape clauses. If I resolve, highly counterfactually, to go jogging at 6 a.m. every day, I don't resolve to go jogging, come what may, literally. There's an open-ended list of conditions under which I don't intend that resolution to apply. It's open-ended because I can't specify all those conditions. Um, because they're literally indefinitely many. If the house is on fire, I won't go jogging. If there's, uh, the police are cordoned off the street, I won't go jogging. If dragons attack, I won't go jogging. Probably if unicorns attack, I won't go jogging. And so forth. It's, it's literally open-ended and indefinite. Now, so we have to be able to recognize when these implicit escape clauses are triggered. And that's very difficult. Hyperbolic discounters are open to self-perception regularly because it's very easy to see your implicit get-out clause has have been triggered inappropriately. So, <coughs> I resolve at 9am not to eat dessert tonight. At 8pm, I may think, well, it's Constantine's birthday today and he would feel put out if I didn't join in sharing his birthday cake. Or, who starts a diet on a Friday? <laughs> Monday's obviously a better day to start a diet. But hang on, Monday's not the first of the month. When Monday comes around, first of the month's a much better day to, um, to start a diet. We are very prone to this kind of self-deception. And I know whereof I speak here. And I think so do you. I don't think this is anything that's highly um, 
you know, novel to any of you. When the attractions of the temptation are salient and our resolutions pallid, we are prone to reconsideration. Now, those are exactly the conditions under which the rationalist says, we need to reopen the question. How should I act now? What are my reasons for acting? You shouldn't take anybody's judgment as authoritative, not even a former time slice of yourself. That would be objectifying yourself. The rationalist's advice that we look outward to our reasons, to the world, in order to judge how we ought to act, is setting ourselves up for the three hours. The resolution, then the reconsideration, and then the sad regret. So looking outward at T1, I will judge I ought to act in a certain way, but when T2 comes around, I will reconsider. Now reconsider is a, a, a slightly ambiguous word. I mean reconsider in the sense of changing my mind. I will think one of those implicit get-out clauses uh, has been activated. Um, that's most likely. I mean, I may, I may reconsider in some other way. I may think, well, you only live once, or um, a healthy BMI is overrated, and doesn't George Clooney have a BMI that's uh, outside the healthy range? And look at him. Um, and at T3, I'll regret it. I don't think it's plausible that the rationalist is going to bite the bullet here. I don't think the, the rationalist would say, well, being a rational agent, recognising your responsibility comes at a cost, and one of the costs is you can't stick by your resolutions. It's not a plausible move, because it's not merely diet, if you think diet is something that's merely, um, that's at stake here. It's the capacity to pursue a conception of the good. And that's itself integral to being a rational agent. So that kind of bullet biting isn't available. It's worth saying I don't take myself here to be offering a refutation of rationalism for two reasons. One, I think there's some truth in the rationalist position. I don't want to refute it because I think it's partially, but importantly, true. Uh, but the other is I'm not in the business of offering a refutation. I'm offering a rival picture, a picture under which objectification of oneself and maybe others under certain conditions, um, when, for example, they're consenting others, um, and when um, or when there are others uh, for whom very important goods are at stake. The picture I'm offering uh, is uh, a picture at which objectifying in that kind of way may be less costly, um, less of a bullet to bite than the rationalist thinks. But again, this picture will give some weight to rationalist um, considerations. Rational agents will intelligently manage themselves. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting we ought never to reconsider. I don't have a formula for when our 
GitHub clauses should be activated. It's clear that uh, imposing uh, one's resolutions on oneself were that possible, were it possible to lock yourself in uh, by simply resolving. It's not possible in some sorts of, in some sorts of ways. Uh, but it's clear that it's not always rational, very far from always rational. There are cases in which it's rational, and people do it. Um, here's a dramatic example. There's a cocaine treatment modality where people uh, write letters to loved ones, friends, family, where they confess the worst thing they've done, usually, to procure cocaine. And it's often very bad. There's something they do not want to know. And they stamp it and address it and give it to the, the, the therapists. Uh, recognizing, agreeing to a condition that if they test positive for cocaine, the letters could be marked. Those are conditions in which people uh, lock in the resolution to a greater extent. You can lock it in even more strongly. You can put a drinks. You, uh, you can put your drinks cabinet on a timer lock. Um, but I'm talking normally about where we're only um, resolving uh, and doing other things I'll talk about next week. Uh, we're actually more in the, yes, next week in the third lecture. But largely not deliberately locking yourself in. Um, I'm also not suggesting that Every time we reconsider, every time we open the question, even if we open it inappropriately, we will act against our resolution. We know that's not the case. People do manage to exercise willpower, be strong-willed, reopen the question, and yet maintain the resolution. So, uh, next, the second lecture, next Tuesday, We'll be looking at the, self, the science of self-control um, in order to ask whether the rationalist can look to that science, the science specifically of willpower, to say, well, it's just not true that reconsideration is setting yourself up for regret because we can reconsider and be strong-willed. And I'm going to be looking to the, the science of self-control to show that yes, we can develop our willpower so that we can reconsider uh, without leading, uh, without having regrets, but that the bulk of the work is still going to have to be done by self-management. Thank you.